this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. His wife had died in June, and there was to be a memorial service for her in two weeks at the end of the summer. Gene's daughter had come out from California with his granddaughter to help make the arrangements, and he found himself dismayed by his general helplessness, which was not exactly the same as resenting what his daughter did for him. But his feelings existed along the same continuum. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Catherine Dion about her book, The Descendants. Dion alternates Gene Ash's current lonely fumbling following the death of his wife with scenes of earlier, happier years. He sifts through memories of childhood, college, and 49 years of marriage, wondering if he'd managed to gloss over anything that didn't fit with his cheerful optimism. What if things weren't the way he'd imagined them? What if he hadn't been as successful as he'd thought? And then he's faced with his own medical crisis, but what if he avoids confronting that as well? The dependence is the most moving kind of drama, an intimate glance into the unseen elements of family life and the way we must all eventually bridge the chasm between what we want to believe and what we know to be true. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Goit. Thanks so much for having me. So, how did you come to tell this really lovely story about an elderly gentleman who's haunted by the past after he suddenly loses his wife? Well, there are a couple of things going on in my own life, um, which were making me think about um, how difficult it can be to know really well even some of the people that we're closest to, or in my case, that I was closest to. And part of that came from um, returning home to the Bay Area where I grew up after college and really re-encountering my parents as as people, um, not just as my mom and dad, um, and really looking more closely at their lives, looking more closely at the things they seemed to have wanted in their lives, but maybe hadn't achieved. Um, And a lot of silences. There were a lot of silences around um, what their childhoods had been like, what was most important to them, how they thought about the rest of their lives going forward now that they weren't taking care of young kids. Um, And I started to try to get to know them better as adults. Um, And my father in particular um, is not particularly um, verbally expressive. And and I actually asked if I could interview him uh, with a microphone, like you're interviewing me today, um, so that I could record it. Um, I had this hunch that maybe if I came to him um, in a more 
formal way and said, hey, I'm curious about your background and your childhood that he might be more willing to open up to me. Um, and, and that turned out to be true. Um, and it was really interesting for me to hear my father talk about stories from his childhood, stories about his siblings, stories about his parents um, that I had never heard. And it also, um, though, made me, it sort of only deepened in some sense the mystery because I, I realized there was still so much about him that I didn't know and that I might not ever know in the course of my life. Um, and that wasn't, that wasn't necessarily problematic, but it really highlighted for me um, that we can be living in extreme proximity with other people, that we can love them dearly um, and be uh, dependent on them in one way or another and still know very little about their inner lives, their hopes and dreams and desires. Um, so that's part of how I ended up um, writing about uh, the people in this book was really thinking about um, all the different ways that um, I didn't know my, my own parents and people of their generation. Mm, that was a really cool idea to, to talk to her dad in that way, to interview him. Was your protagonist based on your father? No, I, he really, I mean, he really wasn't. Um, you know, my mom is very much still alive and I hope will be for a very long time. Um, and uh, there are there are many ways that uh, my father is not Gene at all. But I do think he shares something with Gene, which I think a lot of men of his generation share, which is um, not a lot of um, experience and encouragement as a young person growing up to um, to identify his feelings, to express his feelings openly. Um, you know, it's it's a relatively new thing in our culture that um, men are being encouraged to be vulnerable in the same way that women historically have been um, throughout their lives. That's so true. And I found it very interesting that you told the story of somebody of the greatest generation when that is um, when you are clearly not of that generation. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, I'm really interested and curious about how people make meaning out of the course of their lives. And I think that um, most of us have a pretty strong drive to make meaning. Like when something happens, um, often we're quick to incorporate it into the story of our lives. And I've seen that happen, you know, with wonderful things that happen, but also horrible things that happen. People talk about the gifts that illnesses have given them or um, really tragic losses. And, um, you know, I, I think we're really unique as a species in doing that. I, I don't think that um, plants and animals are sort of engaged in this story making about the meaning of their lives, especially if they've um, experience loss or tragedy. And, um, and so I was interested in writing about, uh, people who had lived really full lives that they weren't, they weren't necessarily at the beginning or even middle of their lives, but they were towards the end of their lives. And for that reason could look back and had, um, lots and lots of years in which to try to, um, make meaning and make sense of that time. Mm -hmm. Does the what does the title refer to? I was kind of I thought maybe it was to the children who depended on the parents or the parents depending the friends depending on each other. What was your thought? 
Yeah, I think it it's it's all of those things. I mean, I certainly chose um, a title that I hoped would not just point to one uh, concrete thing, but point to many dynamics in the book and uh, be larger than sort of having a one-to-one reference point. But, you know, for me, some of the meanings that are in play um, are, are about um, uh, the ways that the two families really came to depend on each other to, to d- define themselves and to define what it meant to be um, a family and, and the ways also that their children depended on the children of the two sets of parents um, grew close relationships with the adults who weren't their biological parents necessarily. Um, And then also just this question of, um, you know, dependence being uh, people that, that rely on you and that when, you know, you're in the middle of your life, maybe you have children and your children are your dependents. But um, as you get older and age, um, you may become the dependent of your own child. And Gene is sort of in that transition where he's still taking care of himself um, in many ways, but also his daughter, Derry, um, is becoming more and more involved in his care in a way that he finds um, somewhat um, intrusive because he wants to have his independence. Mm-hmm. Why does Jane suddenly suspect his recently departed wife of nearly 50 years to have been unfaithful to him in some way? Yeah, well, I think what happens to Jean is that, that you know, there were maybe signs and symbols all along in his life that might have suggested that Maida, his wife, was unfaithful to him, but he had a lot of energy and determination to suppress them. Um, I I know that I certainly um, can fall into that pattern. If there's information showing up for me that's distressing or uncomfortable, it's it's much easier to um, try to explain it away than sort of face it head on. And I think that um, after Maida dies, when people are coming forward telling stories about her, Um, He's less able to maintain sort of the very perfect narrative he's constructed about the happiness that they experienced as a married pair, Um, which is not to say I think they did experience a lot of happiness. I just think that um, there were other feelings um, and things going on, too. And and Gene, um, you know, Gene really thinks of himself as sort of a, a decent guy, an ordinary guy a guy for whom mostly good things should happen because he tries to be mostly good in the world. Um, and, you know, I think that, that, that there's something actually quite um, admirable and sweet about that. And also um, um, I don't think that's the way reality works. Mm. What about Gene's relationship with his best friend? Yeah, it's a complicated one. I mean, he he meets Ed in college when Ed is his tutor. Um, And so right from the beginning, um, Gene is sort of looking up to Ed as someone who is uh, maybe smarter than him, more worldly than him. Ed certainly comes from a different class background than he does. Um, And so... Uh, there's a lot for Gene to want to emulate 
uh, in Ed. And Ed, you know, Ed is popular with women. Ed is the person who introduces Jean to his future wife. Um, so there's this way that, you know, the world seems easy um, to or for Jean. Jean feels like the world is easy for Ed and he, he admires that. And he's also a little bit jealous of it. And as they get older, um, you know, the families, uh, spend time together during the summer at this, uh, lake house that is, has been in Ed's family for quite some time. And so um, they have more of a chance to both deepen the connections between them, but also these undercurrents of um, jealousy and class difference and sexual competition and um, who gets to be more popular with whose kids all sort of are, be also get woven into those friendships and are part of the richness of the dynamic between them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the geography. Uh, this all takes place in the Pacific, no, in the East, in New Hampshire. And the camp that you're talking about, the place where the summer cottage is, is like another character in the book, more so than the people's homes, than everybody's homes. So let's, talk, let's talk about that geography. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, part of the reason I was interested in, in writing about um, this part of the country is that um, it's a place that has seen tremendous change in what is the span of a lifetime. So the span of Gene's lifetime, um, you know, it, he, Gene, in living almost 75 years, could see incredible changes in the, the, Northeast during that time, you know, it was once a place that um, was really the the manufacturing center of the United States and really led to a lot of the prosperity that um, that America was founded on. And um, and at the same time, it was already, you know, by the time Jean was born, it was already in decline. And this ends up affecting Jean directly um, because he owns a shoe store. And by the time um, he's selling shoes towards the end of his life, he's getting outcompeted by um, online retailers like Amazon. Um, I mean, not necessarily Amazon itself, but, um, but retailers who can provide services sort of instantly without any human interaction um, and so, you know, that the, to me, it's pretty incredible that those changes could happen just in the span of a lifetime that an area could go from being sort of the manufacturing center of uh, the country in some senses to uh, a backwater. And, um, and in terms of the camp, the camp is... Uh, the camp is just a tiny little cabin. It's pretty rustic on a lake, uh, but it's a place because the families return to it every summer. Um, it's a place where they can kind of measure um, measure themselves against time. And there's a there's a way that this camp um, is is timeless, and that you know it provides. 
um, a way for the families to uh, escape their city lives and return to a simpler way of life and spend time drinking and playing cards and going to the beach and reading books. Um, and on the other hand, it's also because they go every year, it's also a place um, they that becomes a way of, of measuring the time that passes because it was such an important place when both of the families had very young children. And then as the children grew up, um, the friends returned there um, less and less. Yeah, let's talk about the kids for a little bit. Um, Derry, Jean's daughter, is now in California. So she moves clear across the country. How do you want your readers to understand Derry's character, her everything about her? I think that Derry um, really comes to life in contrast to Jean in a lot of ways, because um, Jean has, you know, poured most of the resources into of his life into trying to make a good life for Derry. Derry is um, much better educated than Jean is. She travels more fluidly and easily than Jean. Um, she she really belongs to a different generation in terms of considering herself a feminist. Uh, she has decided to become a single mother by choice and used a sperm donor to do that. Um, and for Jean, you know, especially her choices around um, having children and not doing so in the context of um, a familial a partnership, a, a relationship, a marriage, um, it's all very sort of foreign and confusing to Jean. And um, there's this sense that, you know, how, how is it that someone who, um, you know, came from me, came from my body, as far as I know, lived in the same world that I did, but has really become this entirely other entity with her own opinions, her own really language even because of the way she was educated. Um, and that is, um, that's a real source of, of sadness and mystery for Jean. And at the same time, I think he's a little bit awed by, um, awed by this whole process that, you know, that this daughter of his, um, could become her own creature so deeply. And so there is a lot of conflict between Derry and her father in the book. Um, and I know that um, that is uncomfortable for some readers. There's some readers who want, um, who want sort of a, a happy story between uh, the father and the daughter. And I just, I just felt that, it, to, it wasn't true to their particular relationship to suddenly um, resolve all the differences between them. I think that they have real moments of tenderness and understanding that are genuine in this book. And at the same time, there's really, um, it's almost like a cultural gap that they, they just can't bridge between them because they belong almost to these completely different um, generations and points in time. Mm-hmm. How do you explain Jean's reaction to what is a pretty scary medical diagnosis? Well, uh, I think Jean um, is really struggling to accept how scary the medical diagnosis is. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a way that he doesn't want it to be true. And so he doesn't he doesn't totally let it in. Um, he's more interested in 
um, you know, finding a way to keep going each day than he is on really thinking about, well, what would it mean if uh, I have to have surgery and it's not successful and is that the end of my life, but it's, it's not, I'm not ready for it to be the end of my life. Um, so, you know, I think he's, he's really in a state of um, denial or half denial um, in part because he doesn't, he doesn't feel ready. He doesn't feel ready to be at the end of his life. And, you know, me having never been yet at the end of my life, I don't know when that will be. Um, I don't, I don't know what that feels like, but I can certainly, um, imagine that whenever I get the news that the end of my life is near, that no matter what the circumstances, I might feel like I'm not quite ready for that. Mm-hmm. Do we come away from the book understanding Jean's character completely? What kind of a person he is? I think we do understand something about Jean. Um, I, I don't think that necessarily it um, can be resolved into a sound bite in into a sentence or two. I think he's an extraordinarily complex human being, as all human beings are. Um, and and that was really something I was trying to do with the book was to write about someone who, in some sense. Um, was very average in terms of um, his income, his education, his work. Um, but, you know, even though his demographic information might register on certain scales as average, um, that he had an extraordinarily rich interiority and um, internal language when it came to looking at his own experience and 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 in my personal experience that is that is true of 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 I think pretty much every person I have encountered um, so I wanted to do that um, justice in his case and and I think you know what we do know about Jean is that um, he he has this um, in some sense naive um, belief that, uh, that again, sort of good works, good attitudes, good deeds, um, produce, um, goodness, produce simplicity, produce purity, produce, um, good feelings among friends and wives and children. And, um, there's a kind of, I think, decency to him that I really, um, admired as I was writing about him. And then, you know, the sort of the, the, the flip side of that is that um, there's a kind of naivete about um, the world lining up the way that he wants it to, um, which it doesn't always do. And, and when it doesn't, it, he finds it really challenging to, to confront that head on. And I don't think he's exceptional in that. I think, um, I think most of us um, you know, we don't, we don't love facing discomfort head on. Mm-hmm. Why does Gene worry so much about being happy? He spends a lot of time wondering if his wife had been happy. And I wonder if that, how that connects to you. What does happiness mean to you? Yeah, I think, um, I think Gene thinks a lot about happiness and the meaning of happiness because, you know, he has a very ruminative temperament. And so he's, um, predisposed to looking at the past and, and wondering, um, you know, did it, did it add up to what I thought I added up to? Um, and, uh, you know, I think in terms of how that relates to me, um, 
I would say I, I'm I'm personally less ruminative than Jean. Thankfully, I think if I were living um, always with Jean's questions and doubts, I would maybe have a hard time getting up every day and moving forward. Um, but I certainly relate to his, um, I relate to the way that his mind goes down multiple paths simultaneously wondering, well, what, what if this had happened or what if that had happened? Or, you know, what if Ed hadn't introduced me to my wife or what if Ed had married my wife instead? Um, I think that there's a, there's a sort of an experimental quality that he allows his mind to follow to sort of test out the other possible lives he might have had. Um, and I don't think that testing in itself uh, is an indication that he is unhappy with the life that he had or that um, if he had, if any of those other um, uh, eventualities had taken place, that he would have been happy either. I think it actually comes from his imaginative capacity to, to the way he engages with the world is to, to think about these sort of things. So, um, uh, yeah, I would say, I would say, um, I, I'm a little bit less ruminative about, um, what at least the past, um, in, in that regard. Okay. So what are you working on next? I started a novel over the summer that was a f very different from um, this past novel. I it was um, it was a little bit of a dystopian novel um, about the future, and then I just found that I was um, so disturbed about our present reality uh, in terms of the way human beings are, um, setting themselves up for, um, the extinction of many, many plants and animals on earth and possibly human life itself with the rate that we're destroying the planet that I became interested in writing nonfiction because it seemed that, um, uh, that what we're doing is, is, is almost like fiction or just as uncanny as fiction. So I'm actually, I've put aside that other novel and I'm working on some nonfiction about, um, ecological destruction and sort of how uh, we as a community can, can face the grief and anger and outrage and confusion, um, we might be feeling, uh, given the, the state of the planet and the fact that we, um, may be headed towards human extinction. I sure hope there's some positivity in that. I hope there's a chance and there's hope. I, I do too. And I think, you know, I think writing, um, a book like that is itself an act of hope. It suggests that there will be people around to read it and that we have an opportunity to, um, grow from the situation that we've created um, uh, as desperate as it is. But I also think that there's a real need for us to um, wake up quickly and not spend 50 years waking up because um, there won't be that much left for the generations younger than us. Right. Maybe it won't, maybe it'll only be an ebook, so you won't, no, no trees will go down <laughs> yeah. to create this book. We'll see. Anyway, thank you so much for talking to me today, Catherine. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Billy. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this podcast interview. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Catherine Dion, author of 
the dependence. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.